0: Welcome to Planet of the Associations. I'm your host, Seth Kahn. And
1: And I'm Mark Levy.
0: And we are glad to have you here, Mark. What are we doing here?
1: Uh, well, Planet of the Associations is our vlog and podcast, and what it is—it's about the association of the near future, not the distant future, not a hundred years from now, but within the next three years. What's the association of the future going to look like, and what can we do today in order to get there? And our aesthetic, as you and I know, and uh, our listeners know, is to go very far afield to look at interesting things exactly that are happening out there that we've experienced and then perhaps bring them back and say, okay, so how does this apply to associations? And so today what, today. what it is, because what we do, Seth and I, uh, uh, we, we, when we get together, we talk for a few minutes about like, oh yeah, what's, what's something, what have you been up to? What's an interesting thing that happened to you? And so, This is the thing uh, that this program is going to be about, and uh, it's going to be about desiccated scorpions. So I'll get I'll get to that in a moment. And so last weekend, my wife and I, we live in New Hope, Pennsylvania. Um, It's a beautiful but heavy touristy part of it's a farm area but we get a lot of tourists here and so there's this place called peddlers village nearby it's about a mile away and it's all these beautiful outdoor shops and uh in kind of a very rural looking environment. And so uh, we went into a specific shop and it was a jerky shop as in beef jerky shop. And I looked around and it had all these unusual, like it was an 1800 square foot shop. And so it not only had beef jerky, it had kangaroo jerky and it had all other kinds of things. And by the way, at the counter was a little display of about 25 or 30 desiccated scorpions. So it was each it was a scorpion in a little blister pack like you would buy them one scorpion at a time. They were dead, they were dried up, but they still had their stingers, they still had their legs and you know you were supposed to eat them. and I actually thought that that was genius because whether or not you would buy the scorpion or not and eat the scorpion a beef jerky store, you know, because jerky is all about uh, being tough. It's about like boiling things down to the essence. It's about eating something while you're still riding in the saddle, and you know, like there's something, uh, um, like there's something challenging, you know, like daring about beef jerky. So to have scorpions in blister packs up front that you could buy, whether you'd buy them or not, just as a display, just uh, um. Amplified the idea of what beef jerky is about. So I thought it was amazing. So the reason why I'm. uh, And so, by the way, a a little as a differentiation guy there, you know, this idea of uh, not everything has to sell. Some things are just great amplification of your dominant idea. So that's a that's an interesting idea there. But the gentleman, the gentleman who ran the store, this guy, Rich, um, he he was very helpful and very funny. Like he ran out. My wife was trying to decide on the kind of jerky to buy. And so he ran out. And I think he said something like he said, "Uh, you're only allowed to ask me one question. Or something like that. He ran. He was being funny. He ran out and uh, to help her. And so, because he was so friendly and funny, I I start. I said, "Look, I'm a business strategist. I'm not trying to get reconnaissance information or something. But like, tell me in this area, what's the most lucrative store." And he started to talk about uh, uh, about the area and it ends up, he said he was so clear about things, but clear in in like in an unusual way, not in a sales way. He said he, he didn't even hesitate. He said, well, so around here, we judge being lucrative by the square footage. So there's a clothing store that may be the most lucrative because it's very, very small and they have expensive clothing there. Great store. But this store that we're in right now, the jerky stores is probably the second highest volume store in the area, And it's eighteen hundred square feet and so and so. And he was talking about it and he ended up talking. He said, well, I have three specialty food shops here in Peddler's Village. I have the. uh I have the, uh, um, the beef jerky store. I have a hot sauce store and I have a pickle store. So the fact that he would have three individual stores. And then I asked him about, uh, he had another uh, jerky store in a much more popular, like, you know, well-known part of the area. And I said, what's the difference in sales between the two? And he said, oh, you know, 400, per- this store that we're standing in does 400% more. My other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And he, you know, and he was talking about it was because of parking and so forth, things like that. But the reason why I'm saying this, I said, where are you like, what's your background? Because here's this guy who is this clear, friendly, serial entrepreneur, just, you know what? And he said, oh, I have a background in I.T., I was with an IT organization, and we were bought out. A biomed company wanted one of our pieces of software, and they bought us out, and whatnot. And then I just so I opened this store, and to me it was really fascinating because the clarity that he needed, obviously, to be this IT whiz, he was putting into these stores, And he even talked about, I had told him that I had just bought a farm nearby a few months ago, uh, which he knew people know my farm. And um, he said, well, I have another friend near here who like you, he never farmed a day in his life. He knew nothing about a farm, but he bought a farm or he was given a farm. I forget what. And it ended up, he started to raise these championship cows with white faces and people would come from all around the world to buy his cows, not as beef cows, but as show cows or whatnot. So it was all around this idea. The reason uh, why we're talking about this right now, the reason that most fascinated you, because um, to me, when I started to talk about this, I said, this guy was amazing. He was so clear about what it is. And like everything seemed doable the way he talked about it with his enthusiasm and his clarity, everything just, it's like he would just roll up his sleeves and do stuff. And it's like, oh yeah, I'll I'll open up another specialty food store. And oh yeah, my friend, he knew nothing about this, but now people come from around the world. So to me, it was this idea of the enthusiasm and clarity. But the thing that you thought was most interesting, Seth, was the idea of People coming into a space that they hadn't been before and excelling in the space. And actually, before I I, I turn over to you, the the mic, the way I just said that reminds me Linus Pauling, you know, the scientist in the 60s and 70s. I think he won two Nobel Prizes and he won two Nobel Prizes in different fields. Like one was chemistry. They were related. They were science. It's not like one was chemistry and one was literature. They were were both sciences, but they were very different sciences. And he had said um, something like he on purpose goes into new fields so that he is not imprisoned by the paradigms within an existing field and he can think anew in a new field.
0: Oh, I love that. Not, not imprisoned by the existing paradigms in a field. And that, that really speaks to me a lot of association leadership, at least those associations that are run uh, not by people who are specialists in their sector, but by people who really have become entranced with the association business model. And you know, one of my close friends, Chris McEntee, was the CEO of the American College of Cardiology, the American Institute of Architects. And the American Geophysical Union—three very different organizations—and in all three organizations, she was able to lead major transformations. Uh, she strikes me as somebody who comes in from the outside and is able to see things and then, you know, tinker with the model and get it to do something wholly new. Um, and in fact, when you were talking, it made me think of the uh, one of the first association gigs I ever had, which was with an organization that at that time was called, I believe the uh, International Association of Corrugated Converters. I hope I have that right. Corrugated, for the uninitiated, is cardboard. But people in that space would never call it cardboard. That's a verboten. You would call it corrugated. And um, when I was working with them, the uh, family-owned businesses that manufacture cardboard in the United States were getting eaten alive by China. Uh, <clears throat> what I learned, this is 20 years ago, all of the cardboard manufacturing plants in the United States Operate within a radius—I forget what it was i want to say 300 miles. Because outside that radius, uh, you were not able to deliver your cardboard profitably. This goes back to the days of you know, trucks, and well, I guess we're still in those days. But they're, we're, we're we're getting electric trucks now, and trucks that are much you know more efficient. At any rate, you could draw a circle with a compass around all the manufacturing plants in the United States and see what the scope of their customer base was. And China was able to. Compete radically. They could stick an integrated circuit chip, wrap the cardboard in plastic, and deliver it to the customer for less than what a family owned business could. There were these two guys, though, young guys, graduates from some big university like Harvard, who had money in their pockets to burn and said, let's buy a business and make it profitable. So they went looking, they were agnostic about what the sector would be. And they found the cardboard sector, the corrugated sector, and they bought this corrugated factory in Baltimore. And I went to visit it. And what they did was they completely overhauled it with the management uh, methodologies and protocols that they had learned in college, and they made it extremely profitable. So, for example, they gutted the cafeteria and turned it into a learning room. Taught everybody accounting, and then did open book management. And the blue collar workers, you know, uh, who were mostly like guys with ponytails and tattoos wearing, you know, Levi's, were got in, you know, educated themselves and started running that factory and they made it profitable and off it went to the races. So, it just struck on, this idea struck me as you were talking about coming into an area kind of sideways, which so many association execs do, and then wrapping your head around the business model and really fine-tuning it so that it hums. That was really what what I was thinking.
1: Right, right. So, uh, how do we how do we get back to that purity of mind? Right when uh, you know when we're inside a subject and we want to think about something without all the prejudices and all the uh, conclusions that we've already drawn, like how can we generate new and kind of naive thinking that might be helpful?
0: Well, I think that you know you hit on something really important when you said your friend about was, the scorpions. Uh, it the IT guy, uh, and right? And the scorpion he- guy that he measured profitability using square footage. And that was a very clean measurement as far as you were concerned. What I've seen from successful association execs is that there's one or two or three measurements that they drill into. They want to understand it. It could be membership churn. It could be the percentage of products and services and how it supports revenue. But I even watched. I worked with Tony Cancelosi when he turned around the Columbia Lighthouse for the Blind here in Washington D.C. It was an organization that was completely tanking and uh, it had been built on having blind people manufacture light bulbs and washcloths and sell them to the general public. And he turned it around completely. And I was on the board of directors during that turnaround, and I watched him. And one of the things he did was that he came into it with a business mindset. He was not an NGO executive director. He had run an IT company, and he knew what he wanted to measure. And the organization, when he first got there, was not set up to measure that at all. It was all obfuscated by all these different systems that were you know, not well understood. And he pushed those staff and built the systems that it took to create and the measurement that he was looking for. And then he used that measurement as a lever to pull that organization up out of a nosedive and get it back into profitability again. So I think this idea of being really clear about what you're measuring, how do you measure profitability? How do you measure impact? I think that's key to that naivety that you're talking about.
1: Right. Um, How do you, what are some good rules of thumb about measurement, about picking the right measures? Because I think think if you measure the wrong thing, it can drive you further away from what it is that you want to do. I mean, it seems obvious, but I've seen people do that.
0: Of course, of course, and I think that's key. I mean, you know every CEO has a has a different kind of sense about what's important to them and what levers work for them. It's like you know, and yet at the same time there's there certainly is some agreement around it. It's like different pilots, different pilots, you know they all use in the same dashboard, but they they really work a particular angle on the levers, the uh, knobs, the steering column that they've got in front of them to pull it together to create their own personal style of flying. Um, and I think CEOs are the same way. They, you know, they they come at it, but you probably if you took the core measurements from a group of a hundred CEOs, there'd probably be a lot of overlap, right? So, like, you know, how do you know that a business is in trouble? Like if you're losing more members than you're putting on every year, right? Or, right. or if you're if your revenues are down, if you if you don't know you if you don't know, if you can't, if you have no dashboard, that's a problem, right? Like how right. am I supposed to know how am I supposed to really run this thing? Um so you know, some of the most common metrics are ones that we all think of, when we think of in in terms of profitability. And and but but I think there's a lot of nuance there because associations are not designed just to be profitable enterprises. They're designed to pull together the members of a particular sector of society and uh, and uh, and execute an agenda that they all have in common. And so the question is, how well are you doing that, and are you doing it in a way that you can fund it? Right. Right. Um, I know that. Years ago, I did the keynote speech at uh, the Sess. Uh, the name is an unfortunate acronym for that organization. Sess. It's the. It was the Scientific Society Executive Directors. I forget Council of Executives of Scientific Societies or something like that. And I I did an informal poll in the audience. There were about 120 execs there, and what I discovered was that they split neatly into two groups. There were the group there was the group that saw their organization as a business. And, you know, the idea of nonprofit was just a tax status. It said nothing about profitability and they were out to make as much money as they could and plow it back into the business so that they could have more programs and services and such. And then the other half were much more interested in impact and the revenue was a support mechanism for impact. It was not a primary driver for them and they were open to alternative models of impact, for example. And those this and while they it's kind of yin and yang. I mean, you can't have impact without revenue, you can't have revenue without impact, but the emphasis was stark. They were leaning in one direction or the other.
1: Right. Beautiful. You know, you said uh uh you said something about for the blind. I'm always sensitive because I have bad eyesight, so I'm always very sensitive to that stuff. And it reminded me this is not about measurement of all at all, but this is kind of like back to the desiccated scorpions, whether yeah. you eat them or not, they're worthwhile at a beef jerky store to have them, right? Because they're a challenge in the same way, right? The, right. the, the idea of the jerky, they uh, um, they underline a certain idea about life. Um, so uh, because you mentioned sight, I had read an article a couple of days ago, about 100 miles away from me in Pennsylvania, there's a children's uh, ophthalmologist or optometrist. I, I, I don't know the difference. Uh, forgive me the association if you're listening <laughs> to what? You don't know. But so so they they help children who have have eyesight problems and they have glasses or so. And the children, apparently, they come in and sometimes they're very scared and, you know, it's very uncertain. And the woman who runs the store, she has a cat. I can't remember the cat's name. It's a very genteel, cute name. But she has this long haired cat and the cat has 20 different pairs of eyeglasses. And so she puts eyeglasses on the cat, and the cat walks in. And by the way, the cat so loves the eyeglasses that often the cat won't doesn't want her to take them off like the cat will like move Uh away it's like i think probably because everyone dotes on the cat when when she's wearing eyeglasses so Uh so like it's good feedback for but anyway this cat comes out with with one of the 20 different pairs of eyeglasses and the children who were in tears they were crying they were hysterical suddenly they're like enamored with this cat and now they want the eyeglasses because the cat has the eyeglasses and they still love the cat. And by the way, some of the eyeglasses that the woman sells, because people have various problems like lazy eye, so they'll have a patch on one, an eye patch over one of the lenses to help to, to correct it or so. So this cat, some of its eyeglasses also have eye patches oh, over wow. it. And so the cat comes right. So the reason why I'm saying this is, here's this thing that sounds like a gimmick, or it seems like a gimmick right with the scorpion with the like this scene eye patches for scorpions that's my new idea um right right but here's this thing you know this cat i mean obviously they're not real glass. i mean they're real glasses they're made out of plastic but they don't have uh, any kinds of real uh, no correct lenses, lenses no. right um you know here's this this cat who uh, um uh like it, 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 like her her in the storm may seem like something of a gimmick, but here she helps the children acclimate better to something that's necessary to happen. And here we are reading about it on websites with millions and millions of people. Right. So the reason why I'm saying that is that sometimes and I can't underline this enough. Um, sometimes something that may seem fun yet frivolous, I see businesses don't do it. They try not, they don't think in that realm. And the thing that you might think of as like this frivolous side idea is the thing that people grab onto. And that's the reason why people want to deal with you because of this thing that you thought was tangential.
0: Well, that's what we're going to talk about on our next show. Fun frivolity and the essential nature of such things in businesses today. So I'm Seth Kahn.
1: And I'm Mark Levy. And this is Planet of the Associations. We will see you soon.
0: See you soon.